that like lack of choice and that lack of autonomy to say like I want to like live here and having that not be available to everyone is infuriating. I'm Daniel. I am Damon. And welcome to the final episode of Climate Change Makers presented by Elevate Energy. So for 20 years now, Elevate Energy has been building equity through climate action by improving quality of life for underserved communities, helping them save money, which we all need, improving the environment, which we all need, and access opportunities in the workforce that will be part of tackling climate change. Which we all need. We do need it. As they move into the next decade of their work, they're looking to learn from their fellow community members who are equitably transforming the environmental legacy of their homes, neighborhoods, cities, and futures. And they brought the two of us in to help. We host a weekly radio show and podcast called Ergo here in Chicago, where we interview artists, organizers, people reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. And we're excited to be doing that work around climate change and environmental justice with Elevate. So we are excited to give you the last of these five episodes in a series where we've been talking to some of Illinois' most impactful environmental justice visionaries who have been working to build a more equitable and sustainable world and explore what ideas guide their work, which strategies have been effective, and what advice they have for Elevate Energy as the organization works to put people and the planet first in the fight to build equity through climate action. Our guest on this final episode of Climate Change Makers is Lisette Castaneda. Lisette is the interim executive director of Lucha, an organization based in Chicago that advances housing as a human right by empowering communities, particularly the Latino and Spanish-speaking populations, through advocacy, affordable housing development, and community building. Had a great conversation with Lizette talking about the first passive house in Chicago, which is a really exciting model. Um, some of the pains, but also opportunities of what COVID means for folks who are interested in environmental justice and housing as a human right. Um, and, and also talking about how we need to pull at this overlapping ball of yarn of all of these systems that control and shape our environment um, and have these overlapping impacts on marginalized people, particularly brown and black communities. All right, y'all, let's get to our grand finale, <laughs> which starts with the same two-part question we've started every episode with. In this time, this moment, this season, how is the world treating her and how is she treating the world? Oh, uh, really big questions. Um, yeah, the world feels uh, fraught. I've used this analogy with somebody else that I think that the global pandemic that we are living through has um, taken a magnifying glass to all of the problems that we were already suffering, that people were already suffering, particularly people of color. Um, and it's it's like the little kid playing with the magnifying glass and the ants. And it does. It feels like it feels like you're burning a little bit um, and it feels like something's coming for you. Um, and definitely trying to put out not just like good positive energy in the world, but good positive works. Um, you know, how do we live up to who we want to be and who I want to be, who I want um, our organization to be. And, um, and it's not a vision that I have certainly framed alone, but, you know, we, we want to be allies and we want to be in solidarity and we want to do good work and we want to push others to do good work and hold them accountable to what we need. Um, so the world these days certainly feels uh, exhausting. Thing. Um, but it could be worse. We could be doing nothing, you know. 
So I'm really excited to get into our conversation about the work and those relationships. But before we do, there's an addendum to that first question that we've been asking everyone in this series, which is how is the non-people world? So the natural world, the animals, plants, basically everywhere there aren't people. How is that world treating you and how are you treating that world? Hmm. Definitely feels, yeah, I... <laughs> You know, it's hot out in Chicago these <laughs> days, um, and it feels, it just, it constantly feels like it's too much. I have all, like, these memories of, of growing up in Chicago in terms of, like, what the cold felt like and what the heat felt like. And I wonder often if I'm just like making things up now where I'm like, no, it didn't used to be like this, but maybe it was. Maybe I'm just not remembering it. I feel really hot in my apartment that doesn't have like central air conditioning. But I also like set my husband out this morning to like go find me an air conditioner for this room, <laughs> you know? So like it's, there's like privilege in that, that I try not to take for granted um, because not everyone can do that, you know? And I just, I worry about, out, um, what like the world feels like for the people who um, have no other choice some days. Um, you know, I'm trying to like be a better steward of the world. Um, in the early part of quarantine, my brother was staying with us and he uh, would like almost, you know, constantly after like making dinner would bring up like, why aren't you composting? Why aren't you composting? It's like, oh my God. Okay. Yes, you're right. Like these are the things you should be doing in the world that feel like a lot, but also feel like they don't matter, but feel small, but feel big that like trying to like navigate how to, how to interact with all of them. And then honestly, the other thing that comes to mind is like the idea of like public transportation. I've spent a lot of my time, especially recently thinking a lot of like, how do I, be better about public transportation and walking and doing all of these things and then COVID hit and it's like oh well public transportation feels fraught now and yet you know still have like uh, a lot of people out there um, who have no other choice and that's also you know a huge question of like what COVID is going to do for the environment in terms of are we going to like lose some of the gains that we had made um so, yeah, mm. it just I have like all these questions about like things like that that I have no answers to. I have a ton of questions and no answers is what this is going to be like. <laughs> well, you came on the right show. Welcome. Um, <laughs> we are answerless questioners. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I want to go back and you kind of alluded to it around the conversation at the AC, but I want to jump in at the conversation about the choices or lack of choice that so many people in Chicago have around housing and the many, many impossible choices that people have to make for their own safety, their own health, uh, the ability to take care of themselves and their families. So I guess grounding it in that, first off, like what's the like one sentence description you give when someone's like, oh, what do you do for a living? But more importantly, how do you see your work and your organization's work contributing to the whole? Yeah, so um, LUCHA um, is uh, an acronym for Latin United Community Housing Association. Um, we have been around since 1982 working along the housing spectrum. So we both um, house people, we are affordable housing developers, and we help people uh, achieve their own dreams of home ownership through our HUD certified housing counseling. In between, um, we also have services for our residents, um, services for the community at large through our community law project, and are just looking to do good work in the community and the community 
community that needs it. Um, we rose really out of the Puerto Rican community um, that is uh, came together and organized, particularly after the riots that happened in um, in '66 and '77 in in Humboldt Park. So we have a strong legacy of social justice and a strong legacy of um, you know coming together and getting what we need for our communities. Today, we have 198 units of affordable housing um, that house over 400 tenants. And we... We we do we do our our very best to um, to provide for our tenants what they need, not just in terms of shelter, um, but definitely in this moment, like nothing has been more true for us than the idea that you can't shelter in place without a home. Home is health. And so that idea of making sure that folks are able to have a place where they have like a roof over their head and they're able to be healthy and do what they need uh, during this time has been really important to us. So, so I mean, you know, I just keep f- feeling that metaphor you said of like the magnifying glass of this pandemic has one you know, enlarged everything, but it's also like glaring and, and, and hot and feels like, you know, it's burning. And that, you know, revisiting a, a, a sentence that you said that interests me of almost like a fear of losing so many of the things we've gained or won. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just want to kind of like pull that out or unpack that, right? Because it's inspiring to hear that there is an organization making sure that 400 people have the basic need, primary need of shelter. And so from your experience, or maybe you were talking more holistically, what are some of the things that have newly been won or have been in progress that you feel are vulnerable right now or that we really need to work to protect or defend since we have this earth-shattering change in our environment? You know, the thing that comes to mind really when when we worry is, um, and, and this has happened with a lot of policies, both um, locally and nationally, that there's this feeling of like we're kicking the can down the road. And for example, among the things that has happened is that there has been a lot of... Um, Uh, like eviction moratoriums and things like that. But the question of like, what happens when all those folks that are unemployed and that have been unemployed for months now um, are no longer have that protection? Because at some point that protection is going to run out. Um, And, you know, we've worked to make sure that people are housed, that, you know, everything from like fair housing laws to like the work that's done to make sure that, you know, someone can, can just be in their home and can afford to be in their home. And, you know, um, I, my growth as, as a person, as a leader really came through the affordable housing space, you know, and so we fought so long and so hard for affordable housing. Um, but is that going to be enough at the end of the day when people haven't been, uh, don't have jobs, don't have emergency savings, don't have the systems in place to fall back on um, when, something like a global pandemic hits, you know, and I want to say that nobody foresaw, but that's actually not true. People did foresee it and there just wasn't enough done for it, you know. Um, And then also, like, specifically, I think of, like, the environment and, you know, we as an organization um, definitely have a commitment towards environmental justice. We developed uh, the first multifamily affordable housing passive house in the city of Chicago. um, And it's phenomenal. It's, It's just, it's such this incredible thing that we have done. So f- one, one second, just for those yeah. who may not be familiar with that language of passive house, can you explain what that is and the value that that brings and why this is a new model we should really be encouraged by? Yeah, absolutely. I actually think that at some point, you know, like passive house is going to be the standard. It'll just be house. 
<laughs> yeah, it'll just be like it'll, it'll just be, be like this is how we do house. This is how we do house. Um, so um, I'm going to uh, just to be like a little technical here, right? Um, there is an organization called um, Passive House Institute US, um, and they're really like the standard bearers, and they're the ones that are holding up the principles of Passive House. And so Passive House, um, the way they define it, is a set of design principles used to attain quantifiable and rigorous level of energy efficiency. Really, what this means is that we have built this multifamily house that has um, a continuous insulation and that has a building envelope that's extremely airtight. Like those are like the really two big things about it. There's a lot of very technical things. Um, but in terms of these things, it means things like having to use less air conditioning and less heat. So like right now, the tenants in that building are comfortable um, with having to use very little air conditioning and in the winter they're very comfortable with having to use very little heat um, anecdotally I'll just tell you that I went into the unit of one of our tenants and she is actually um, a Puerto Rican climate um, refugee or internally displaced really because she's from Puerto Rico um, and after Hurricane Maria hit um, Lucha housed 14 families um, who had no place to go um, because they had come from they had come from the island to the mainland and needed housing and she's one of those families and so she's like two years at this point maybe less off the island and she talked about how it was like november and she was very comfortable like hadn't had to use a whole lot of the heat and you know it's very warm naturally on that island and so for her to be like i'm very comfortable was like a huge thing you can open windows you can still do what you would do in a normal house but the way that it's built because of the air tightness um it just makes for like a really like solid steady climate inside the house um you know and we all know like again like the air conditioner that i you know sent my husband to go by this morning isn't doing great things for the environment you know so the passive house for us was it was a really big deal and it went in conjunction with really the hurricane that hit puerto rico you know as i mentioned earlier uh lucha really comes from the organizing in the puerto rican community in chicago in humboldt park and we really have thought long and hard about how we are participating in environmental justice, understanding that what happened on the island when Hurricane Maria hit was environmental injustice. It was it was a climate change disaster. Um, and so for us, we want to keep moving in this direction. And there's like the little things that, you know, many organizations have done. You know, it's like we have uh, a shared like water cooler so that you can like refill a water bottle instead of having having water bottles, you know, we've moved towards doing more things around um, compostable um, forks and knives and, you know, just like cutlery and dishes. Um, and these are the things that it's like, okay, well, in the era of COVID, you can't have things that you're sharing. So, okay, like you can't really have the water cooler over there. And you can't really like do a lot of the things that really felt like we were moving towards using less, again, less single use, less any one of these things that just doesn't feel like that's something you can do during COVID when you have a disease that's spreading rampantly, rampantly through the brown and black community. So the communities that we are serving um, and not actually... Um, without like a vaccination or a way to control it. Um, in addition, there's just things of like, you know, the world has changed. You know, originally we had planned on building our new office space to be to net zero standards. So we had achieved passive house. Our, net, our next 
project was going to be net zero. And we're not sure of what that looks like to do that now, you know, because the world in terms of philanthropy, in terms of like raising money and the sort of focus of any number of sources of funding is just shifting. And environmental and something as like ambitious as a 10,000 square foot space that's net zero just doesn't feel like it's anyone's priority anymore. Because now the thing that like we're concentrating on is like, how do we like maintain the staff that we have to do the work that we're doing and like the extra work that is super necessary during this moment? Yeah, it's it's one of those questions around, you know, what happens when, whether it's climate disaster, human perpetuated disaster, it's like, is that when you have to batter down the hatches or is that when you can take a bigger jump to say, let's not put ourselves in this situation again, right? And, yeah. and you mentioned philanthropy. I think that's a really big piece of this is like, when the people get to set the terms of where the money goes are not the people who are seeing the need most directly. It's very hard for, for people doing work like you're describing to have to spend time kind of chasing uh, these benchmarks as opposed to being able to say like, hey, this is not only just as much of a need, it's more of a need in this crisis. And we can see you know, these looming crises. And so to that point, I'm curious, y- you mentioned the hurricane and the, the connection uh, to the island. Are there any lessons or practices that you saw be enacted there uh, that y'all have taken into your work, whether it's just internal practices or in thinking about housing and responding to, to crisis and disaster? Um, so I think that, you know, I got to Lucha after we had like really taken on a lot of this work. And the thing that I saw most clearly really was this idea that like we have this larger responsibility and this larger work that we have to do around the environment and around climate change, if for no other reason. Like there's a ton of really good reasons, right? But like, (laughs) if for no other reason, because it hit really close to home for the organization. You know, we have, you know, several staff who were born and raised on the island. Again, we come from um, and we are part of the Puerto Rican diaspora in Chicago. And so just to watch like this horrific hurricane hit the island and batter it. And it's just like, oh, God, you know. How do we respond? And there's like, again, the immediate things that we could do. We we have people that we housed. We literally like put roofs over people's heads. But um, yes, like this like long-term, short-term thinking also came into play. And it's like long-term, like how do we deal with the environmental things that we can control and that we can contribute towards being better because it's it's part of what affected that you know like this this super hurricane hit this because we have in some way participated in climate change and so what are the things that we can do and what are the standards that we can do um it continued a thought process that had already you know sort of been running through the organization um including thinking about like things like utilities for example you know so yeah you know to to transition back to you saying the, a lot of the work was grounded in entering the affordable housing space, mm-hmm. uh, which is something, you know, I'm really passionate about. And how do we have a larger, more holistic view around shelter and around housing as, you know, not an asset or not, a, you know, some like tradable good or resource, but a, a necessity for human life um, and a part of our environment. Um, and so I'm, a, I'm seeing the head nods and I, you know, I know the language <laughs> and like the, the, the messaging of your organization. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming some shared position on that. What have been the tensions in the affordable housing space? Because I know that that language is really politically charged and particularly here in Chicago on a local and state level, you know, the real estate industry and and market-based 
institutions have a lot of political power and the way that affordability is presented often does not match up with the reality and like it's still very much unaffordable <laughs> for a lot of people. So I'm just curious, looking in a more holistic environmentally justice based approach, how has it been managing like the politics of housing and affordability in the Chicago landscape that is so let's just say corrupt, like explicitly. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's a 45 minute answer alone. Um, yes. So, I, so there's things that, you know, like we have done, like, again, like the first um, affordable housing multifamily passive house in the city of Chicago was a really big deal. Part of it being because very often when we talk about affordable housing, we talk about like, um, what is the cheapest that we can build? In fact, we are held to a standard as developers um, by those that like grant us money of like, there is a limit to how much you can spend per unit. There is a limit to how much money overall you can spend on what you're doing. So things like a passive house, um, the passive house was something that like which as an organization put the money forth for the like essentially like for what was above and beyond just regular housing like we put mm-hmm. the money up for that because that was never something that was going to get funded you know so like in terms like of environmental justice and you know poor people like people who need to live in affordable housing being able to afford to live in a place like this like that's just never the standard um also you know part of this being that there is a feeling that like those who need affordable housing are like the poorest of the poor you know and it's like like, oh, you like just need to be able to, um, you know, you don't have anything else. And it's like, well, that's not true either. You know, like many of our folks like work, they work 40 hours, they work on a regular basis. Many of our folks today are actually able to work from home right now during COVID. Like they have jobs that allow for that. And it's still it is unaffordable to live in a market rate apartment. When we talk about housing, too, we have to talk about like, again, like you said, like the whole landscape of it. And for us, like, especially when you think of like the environment, you really have to think about it, um, like literally about the space that you're in. How much access do you have to public transportation? Public transportation, again, is a scary prospect right now these days um, because of COVID, but at some point it won't be. And that's like the most environmentally safe thing to do. It's also the cheaper thing to do. Um, And yet, you know, we're often um, here of affordable housing or public housing being built in places that you can't access a train, you can't access the bus, or all you can access is the bus, you know, Know, and like anyone who's been on public transportation in Chicago, you know, there is a huge difference between getting on the bus and getting on the train, you know, like <laughs> yeah, it's that's, usually about an hour and a half. It's like about an hour and a half difference. You know, it <laughs> takes forever, you know, um, but for many, um, you know, for many folks, you know, like you end up building housing in places that, you know, they are food deserts, they are public transportation deserts. And that's just like at the basic level. And so like where you build like really does determine like your ability to do any number of things, you know, Um And it's big and it's complex, you know, and like there's like lots of great allies out in our fights, um, but it is a hard thing to do, you know, day in and day out. And and we certainly cannot and have not been able to do it alone. It's something that we do with um, with our colleagues and that we do with our allies. Yeah, it's all it's all interconnected. Again, I was talking about like the cost per unit, you know, the cost per unit in a place like Logan Square, which is where I live. And I lived and I've lived in Logan Square since before it was cool you know like (laughs) this is you know like 
gentrification heaven these days. And that is not what it was when my family bought like the only thing we could afford, which was a three flat, you know, and like the eastern end of Logan Square, which of course now is like popping. And it, it's so much more expensive to build in these kinds of neighborhoods, you know. Mm. Um, our colleagues at uh, Bickerdike Redevelopment Corps have um, been working for a long time, and they're almost there, um, on building 100 units of affordable housing over the Logan Square Blue Line. Mm-hmm. It will be ETOD, Equitable Transit-Oriented Development and that is going to be incredible. But it's been a lot of pushback, both from the neighbors and from, you know, like in like it's that fight it's, was that was wild. I was actually at uh, one of the public hearings that they did <sighs> around that. You ever see like in a movie when they show public hearings and you're like, oh, there's <laughs> no way that people were actually acting like that. And then you're in there. Like, oh, oh, this person is screaming <laughs> like legit that was a that was a real like i think this is like the end of act two of a movie right now and yeah. luckily this one it looks like is gonna have a happy ending yeah it's it's gonna be incredible like this is like again like equitable transit-oriented development is environmentally sustainable it is environmental justice because it's about you know people who need affordable housing also being able to access again the train and the bus and like all the other amenities that are afforded instead of being in deserts where you can't do any of that um and it's such a fight again yeah that public meeting i know exactly which one you're talking about it is <laughs> it is like out of a movie and and it's real you know i'm still a leader with the logan square neighborhood association um okay. and um and i was on the board for a long time and when i was on the board was when bicker dyke was working on uh another project uh, which is Zapata Apartments Mm -hmm. Um, and that project scarred me for life like we testified in front of uh, like the housing committee at sitting council and you know one person got up and said uh, there are makers in the world and there are takers and I am a maker and they are takers you know and you're just sitting you're just like I don't I don't know where like our shared source of humanity is like it may just not exist you know Lucha, we we carve out like our little corner of the world and we we continue to do what we do and we provide housing because housing is a basic human right that we shouldn't have to fight for. It should not have to be this hard. Um, and it is. And we we fight for it, you know, for as long as it is. But I, you know, we dream of a world where like it's not a fight, you know, where it's like it's basic. Like, of course, you have housing and of course, it's housing you can afford. And of course, you have choice, you know, right. because this is the other part of it that it's like, oh, well, there's like affordable housing all over the city. It's like, yeah, but not everybody like wants to live in that one place. Like, the, you know, you have great communities um, and all of the south and west side is full of great communities. Of course they are. But, you know, that's not where I grew up. I want to be able to stay in Logan Square where I grew up. That's not possible for everyone. Um, and that like lack of choice and that lack of autonomy to say like, I want to like live here and having that not be available to everyone is infuriating. And again, in moments like this, where you hear about, you know, like the COVID uh, fears and dangers in in shelters, because you just, it's just like the staff does their very best. I know that they do, you know, and, and you can't help it. And it's just, it's infuriating, you know? Yeah. 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 I, can, <laughs> I hear a, it in your voice and I see it in a, your eyes. Yeah. There's, there's a lot there. Um, 
Yeah. I do want to stay there because I think, you know, we're talking in mid-July and in some places those eviction moratoriums are being lifted um, for the first time since the pandemic began. uh, And we're starting to see this first wave of mass evictions, as you said, kicking the can down the road in this other way uh, that led to this crisis that we're entering into around housing and around shelter. I think 50% of me is looking for like some reassurance and I don't think I'm going to get it. So is (laughs) I see like some very concerning threads and articles about what is probably coming when it comes to uh, eviction and people being pushed out all over the country, not just here in Chicago, but here as well. Am I missing anything or is this just going to be really, really bad? I mean, I certainly think it's going to be bad. I think for us and for many of our peer nonprofit affordable housing developers and providers, like we've seen dips, you know, in like the rent that we're collecting. Um, I know, you know, speaking for ourselves and for Lucha, like we are an organization that we are very mission led. And so whenever prior to this, you know, if you like had a problem and needed to work on a payment plan, like that was always something that we could do. That's something we continue to be able to do. And that's part of like what a lot of like the new rules and legislation that have been passed through at like the city level are aiming to have everyone like do some level of that. But at some point, I I don't know how sustainable that's going to be. If only because, again, like if you've been unemployed for three months and like the restaurant that you worked at is like open enough now that you can go back to work now, they're not replacing your wages for the last three months. And you you still owe that money. And you still owe that money. So like, where do you go from there? Um, The thing I'll add, which doesn't make it better, this is makes it worse, right, is that (laughs) this also will be, it's not just evictions, it's going to be a question of what foreclosures are going to look like, right? You know, and again, I think of like my own experience where in in our case, you know, my family specifically bought a three flat someplace where, um, you know, my dad who was working in uh, the banquet hall of a hotel and my mom who was a homemaker felt comfortable being able to afford something where they knew that the mortgage payment wasn't only coming out of their pocket because you never know. There was, of course, time that came where like my dad didn't have a job, you know, and like we paid the mortgage because we had renters. And um, in places like Logan Square, a lot of our stock is two to six flat buildings. And so, you know, the question of what foreclosures will look like will also become a thing because that's also going to impact renters. And also because it is like it's part of that flow. You know, my family could afford to pay the mortgage because we had renters. So if the renter cannot afford to pay the rent, then what happens to the mortgage? In the foreclosure crisis in in 2008, um, you know, places like Logan Square were hit really hard. I don't know if that's going to be the case this time because just literally the demographics of Logan Square have changed so drastically. Um, partially because it was hit so hard in 2008. So partially because it was hit predatory so hard. developers could buy it up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we had a lot of uh, condo conversions and things like that that also exacerbated it. Um, but in all of our communities, we have people who, you know, you don't necessarily rent at market rate. You know, there's naturally occurring affordable housing, you know, like you're renting to a relative or a close family friend and you're renting for a little less than, um, you know, you would rent. But it's because it's someone that, you know, 
but now that person has lost their income. And so are you going to be able to make the mortgage payments? Um, and mm-hmm. I, you know, there's lots of numbers that you can find out in the world around just like how little um, savings black and brown families have compared to white families, you know, like the income inequality is a huge part of this. Um, and that again, that affects both renters and homeowners. There's lots of thoughts, you know, around some of this. There's also adding in that it looks like we were in a recession even prior to COVID, you know, now that the numbers are coming out. And so I think that um, this is a bad problem that's just going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what we do here is we take that kind of sentence and it's not spinning it. It's opening up what are the opportunities and the possibilities that we hope and work toward imagining to fill that void, right? Because there is this huge void and this huge need. So for you, whether it's a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, what do you hope the conversation, one, around housing looks like? And two, like, what do you hope your community looks like? Hmm. Um, I hope that my community is made up of people that want to be here and that want to contribute to our community and that everyone is recognized as having a contribution. There's often this insidiousness around like renters and it's like, well, you want homeowners because renters are transient. And it's like many people have had, you know, 25 year tenants who have contributed to the community greatly. Um, And I want a community where like everyone who's here feels like they have something to contribute because they do. Everyone has something they can contribute, but not every Everyone is sort of taken up on that offer, you know, so to speak. I want it to be something where, or well, HUD defines affordable um, as spending 30% of your income or less on housing and housing related needs, you know, and like that feels basic to me that it's like, if that's the standard that's set at like the federal government level, like everything that we do should be living towards that, you know, mm. um, how, whatever that looks like and however municipalities and local governments and state governments have to contribute towards that. Some weeks back during the emergency session in Springfield, uh, Representative Delia Ramirez had proposed legislation where it would be forgiveness of uh, rent for six months, I believe it was. And then in turn, landlords would be able to access a specific pot of money that would come from the federal government, I think from the CARES Act, um, to replace that lost income so that renters wouldn't have this problem where they have this back rent that they owe, like it would Mm -hmm. actually be paid out. You know, um, I frankly, would go a step further. You know, we've also, like Lucha participated in a report that WBEZ did um, talking about um, the inequities in terms of investment from banks in Black and brown communities. As I think of things like, you know, okay, well, there's this federal money coming that landlords can access so that they can forgive the rent, but still have the money to pay the mortgage. You know, I also think like, you know, I hope that in 50 years, we've done a better job of um, making sure that all banks are being held to the standard of like, how are you truly investing in these communities? You're making money from the communities. How are you truly investing in them? It could be as radical, radical in quotes, right? To the as root, like, yeah. You know, like, let's do forgiveness on that end too. Let's do mortgage forgiveness for the same amount of time that we're going to do rent forgiveness. You know, let's really get in there on like who has the money and who's making the money and where the control is so that we can um, make sure that like, 
again, it's it's basic. It's yeah. housing. It's like yeah. it's like it's food. Right. How how can this be so hard? Um, yeah, and that, you know. Yeah, the last part really does feel like if we want to use the word opportunity, where any opportunity can come from all of these overlapping crises is that there's this like musical chairs happening, but if we just stop and like turn off the music and look at who's touching the boom box, it's, it's this, the financial sector and private equity and the banking industry. Uh, and there seems to be like no conversation, no like popular pressure to say, Hey, you guys are not being very nice right now. I was going to curse, but I, I, I want to be nice to elevate listeners, <laughs> but you guys are, you guys are being that cool. Uh, and, and you know, that is where I think the redistribution of wealth needs to be focused and it could happen overnight. It could happen with a click of a button of just turning over. If we want to call it these assets or this equity to the control of people and all of these pieces of paper that keep people in debt and make their shelter precarious is being held by this one sector of our society. And it seems to be happening like in this very Wizard of Oz way in this year feels like the first year where we can like in real time start to approach the curtain. And so that feels potentially exciting for me. It is a weird feeling to walk up to a curtain when you don't know what's behind it. At least here we know who's behind it. Like, you just, like, peek in. It doesn't always end well. Well, and and so much of it is that we've been doing it for so long. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, this is how our entire system has been built. Right. But, yeah, I, you know, it's so interesting. We've talked a lot about this internally, too, about, like, you know, there's nothing good from COVID, right? But, like, there are opportunities here that there were not before. And there are certainly things that have been sort of like pushed to the forefront and happen a little faster than they would have otherwise because of COVID. The revolution that we're seeing happening, you know, at, on a larger scale um, is part of that, you know, because it it was not just about like the murder of one person. It was about like injustice upon injustice, not just in the like, police profiling space but like in everything it is about the fact that so many black and brown families are not stably housed it is about the fact that you've got multi-generational families not just because it's cultural and because it's what you want but because you have no other option and then you're further spreading covid and then you have so many essential workers i don't know if you've seen um any of the numbers in terms of covid in like the black and brown communities but the last time i had checked which it's been i think like the data is about a month old the top 15 zip codes in illinois that had uh, the highest rates of covid were all latino zip codes and then like the ones right below that were all like you know mixed neighborhoods very often you know black and brown neighborhoods none of this is separate it's like this very tightly knit ball of yarn that like we're pulling at the strings now because you know, we're, we're frustrated and we're angry and there's so much that we can do. And again, it's environmental justice. It's about where you're knocking down the factories in the middle of a quarantine that are releasing things into the community. You know, it's about where you're relocating the factories to, you know, like how convenient that we're moving them out of like the more affluent neighborhoods into poor neighborhoods of color. Mm -hmm. Like all of this is all related and it is all about housing. It's about shelter. It's about where you live. um, And it's all coming to a head now and so yeah like let's let's take this opportunity you know and like do what we have to do to get out there and and get justice so to close in the pulling of that yarn in the unraveling of that ball that is exciting 
and unknown, but so necessary for Elevate Energy and for organizations in that similar kind of space who are doing really meaningful work and working with some community partners and shaping policy and doing one-on-one services. So it's all over the place. But what we're hearing from this in their partnerships is this commitment to trying to help unravel that ball of yarn. What do you want them to know about how that unraveling needs to happen and the role that they and other organizations in that space should be contributing to it? Um, yeah, I think part of like the big reckoning that we've had over just even those last like six weeks has been very much around making sure that there is a lifting of, um, those who are being most affected, you know, like voices of color, you know, like, you know, people are experts on their own lives. And so this idea that like, we need someone to come in and and save anyone else is just not valid. Um, The thing that we need is people to stand together and to be allies and to follow the lead of those who are being most affected. Um, There's a ton of opportunity to, you know, go to organizations and say, like, what do you need? Not this is what I'm offering, but what do you need? And then figure out like, okay, like, well, if that's what they need, then this is what I can do, or this is what I know other people can do for you. Standing together, understanding that like it's it's systemic, you know, like and this is, you know, when we talk about environmental justice, it's because we're talking about environmental racism and it's because we're talking about racism and it's never not never, but it is certainly it's a systemic problem. We can't boil it down to a person or a thing and say, like, this is going to solve the problem. These are big, large systemic problems. And you have to be ready to be uncomfortable as we tackle all of these things, you know, because we all have to look at like the ways in which we have been both oppressed and been oppressors and the ways in which we have privilege and don't have privilege and like who is losing out the most. And that can be difficult. But I firmly believe there is room for everyone in the revolution and there's lots of roles that you have to play in the revolution. As we go out and we participate in it, like figure out what your role is and do it and you'll make mistakes and that's okay. You learn and you move forward. You learn and you move forward. As long as we are moving forward, we have possibility, we have potential. This is the most optimistic I've been in in, a, in weeks. I think we now. did our job. Yeah, Look at that. Yeah, you made, you made me more optimistic. <laughs> but yeah, we we can do this. You know, because it's systemic. Because it's such a huge ball of yarn. There's also room for everything. If like your thing is environmental justice, there's tons of things that you can do in th- tons of places that need allies right now. It's a but big there's environment. Also, it's a big environment. <laughs> you know. So yeah, it turns out it's like earth sized. Um, so. Yeah, there's lots that you can do there, but also like whatever other part you feel passionate about, what anything else that you feel passionate about, like there is work to be done in that space. Mm. So like go figure it out, go think like, okay, this is what I feel passionate about. What's the work that needs to be done in this space? Because it all eventually comes together. What a wonderful conversation with Lisette. Uh, I was really glad to, to get to know her. Usually when I Zoom someone, they're not like within a couple miles of my house. <laughs> so she's basically my neighbor. So it was nice to get to know a neighbor a little bit. And I'm always encouraged to live vicariously through someone else's optimism. So I'm glad that we <laughs> got there and I'm trying to take some of that steam with me. Yeah, a, a little a little optimism boost helps. Yeah, yeah. A little vicarious optimism. That's, that's the secret ingredient. Speaking of optimism, I feel like now that the series is complete, these five conversations, it is not a pessimistic series. These conversations have been so joyous. I feel like I've learned so much, and it's just been so great to learn not just what these five people and their 
organizations and communities do, but the how and why of what keeps them in their work and keeps them moving forward. Um, and, and I hope that y'all got some of that wisdom as well. And once you put these conversations together or in conversation with each other, uh, <laughs> um, play them all at the same time. <laughs> you get a real sense of, of you know, exactly what we're talking about this world of possibilities that we have to look forward to so uh for those who've listened definitely share this as a resource for folks to get in tune and to understand what's happening locally on the ground in chicago uh but even folks who aren't here in this city of chicago what the work that these people do is significant and connected to what's happening all over the planet uh so we hope that it has been as valuable to you as it has been to us being a part of these dialogues so thank you so much to Elevate Energy for being our partner in this series. Make sure that you subscribe, share, comment, review the Climate Changemakers podcast on wherever you get your pods. You can, of course, subscribe, comment, review the same thing for Ergo. And we look forward to continuing to see how Elevate Energy grows and adapts and takes the lessons that we heard over these five conversations into their work as they celebrate their anniversary. It has been our pleasure to host this podcast. So much love and appreciation for everybody. Peace.